Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, Origin Energy announced the closure of Australia's largest coal-fired power plant in Araring in New South Wales by 2025, bringing forward its demise by seven years. This is the latest in a series of announcements to close coal plants earlier than expected with the continued development of renewables, making coal-fired power both more expensive and inefficient. Cam Walker is with Friends of the Earth. He joins us monthly on the show and is on the line now. Hey, Cam, it sounds kind of strange to say it, but I'm happy 2022. Yes, it's come around fast, hasn't it? It has, yeah. The first time we've um, had the chance to, to chat this year, but look forward to having your insights um, once again on the grapevine for, for 2022. It's going to be um, great to have you as part of the show. Yeah, thanks. It's always good to be here, and it's going to be a very interesting year. Obviously, Victoria, state election. Federally, we've got the election. Uh, there's a, a rapid increase in the transition that's happening in the energy sector. There's so much going on in Australia, so that, lots to talk about. Yeah, no shortage of things to talk about at all. Um, so, so let's start with this announcement from Origin last week. What was your, your take on that? Well, this was pretty interesting. And, um, you know, if, if we step back from this closure or this announcement about closure, there's some things that are pretty obvious. And, and the first one is that, the market is making up its own mind about closures. We've had this failure by the federal government to actually accept that closure is happening and they're talking about the gas-led recovery still, you know, two or three years on, which is a completely irrelevant kind of red herring uh, debate. They're, they're, they're just refusing to look at what is happening and the market is deciding, that is, investors and companies are deciding to close uh, coal-fired power stations earlier than had been intended. And this is largely because, uh, you know, the, well, there's a whole bunch of things going on, but um, they, uh, look, many of these power stations are getting old. And as new renewables come online and as storage gets cheaper, the old coal, which is increasingly unreliable, can't compete economically with the new renewables and storage. So it's a market decision. And, uh, you know, that's basically what happened in the case of rearing. And it is very significant because um, it, the company was very clear that renewal, renewables coming into the market are impacting on their profitability. They noted that there's a, quote, rapidly changing energy market. And it's important to remember that this is the largest power station in the country. So if it starts to change, the knock-on effects through the industry will be really felt um, nationwide, including here in Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, I mean, th there is the writings on the wall. I mean, there's, you know, AGL has announced that it's bringing forward the closure of um, the, the Bayswater generator in New South Wales by at least a couple of years. And Loy Yang in, in Victoria has been brought forward. Um, it's, uh, you know, projected closure as well um, from 2048 to 2045. And Energy Australia's Yulon power plant in the La Trobe Valley um, is planned to shut in 2028 rather than 2032. So this is happening across the board. But as you say, the fact that this is Australia's largest coal-fired power plant is, is particularly significant. In light of that, what do you make of Angus Taylor's sort of angry response to, to not being consulted about the, the closure being brought forward? Yes, he did say he was, uh, uh, or he felt it was a, quote, bitterly disappointing announcement. I think the fact he wasn't involved and consulted kind of indicates the fact that he's dealt himself out of this particular card game. 
the federal government has displayed no interest, and in fact, it's it's displayed very long, active, hostile opposition to the transition that's underway. And basically, the company clearly decided to get on uh, with things without him. It's been very interesting to see the reaction uh, in contrast from the New South Wales government, which very quickly announced a, basically a package which they say would create 3,700 jobs in the clean energy sector. They want to revitalise manufacturing and particularly look at renewable manufacturing, so wind towers and, and turbines, things like that. They're looking at developing renewable energy zones. They're looking at um, extending the transmission grid, the infrastructure, so the new renewables are able to get their electricity to where it's needed. They're looking at green hydrogen. This is the sort of thing that state governments should be doing. It is the sort of thing federal governments should be facilitating, and sadly they're not. The kindest thing you can say about the federal government is they're asleep at the wheel, um, you know, but you could also say, well, they've done everything in their power to prop up fossil fuels, whereas state governments like Victoria and New South Wales are actually starting to facilitate the transition away from fossil fuels into renewables and storage. Yeah, it almost feels like a, a kind of self-fulfilling and, and prophecy and, and, and sort of defeatism from the government as, as well to suggest, the federal government that is, to suggest that, you know, the closure of a, of a large coal-fired power plant will threaten supply into the grid, which I suppose in and of itself it it does. But in New South Wales, as you say, there's a whole lot of, of efforts now to, to make sure there is enough supply going in. To what extent do these, these closures being brought forward um, propel further investment in, in renewables and, and bring forward the, the sort of transition that we need more broadly? There's already a an absolute vast amount of renewable and storage uh, ready to go and currently being built. So on the back of the Arrarian announcement, um, Origin did say that they build um, a large battery on the site, the power station, when it closes. And then the New South Wales government also said, oh, we'll also build a 700 megawatt battery in the area. You know, people are just getting on with it. Um, and basically we've realised that one of the backlogs we have is getting the electricity from where the new sources of electricity and getting it to where we need it. And so there's a lot of investment that is needed in power lines, basically. Um, In Victoria, you know, we used to produce all our electricity in the Latrobe Valley and we used to ship it to Melbourne and then we would ship it to Portland to the uh, aluminium smelter down there. So it was a a point of origin going out to an end point, whereas now renewable energy is much more decentralised. As everyone knows, you know, there's renewable energy everywhere. So that changes the nature of the grid and that requires investment. So it's not just a matter of building new uh, energy projects. It's about connecting them. And then it's also having a deeper conversation around, well, you know, what level of new infrastructure do we need? Um, There's the solar homes project in Victoria and if you just look around Melbourne, you see the absolute vast volume of solar panels on people's roofs. People love uh, solar photovoltaics, and, and that is becoming a massive energy source in its own right. So how do we share that equitably within communities, and that, you know, how do we reduce the need for, for distant build of renewables? So we are witnessing the transformation of our energy system, and what we really need is governments in the game to drive that, and I think in Victoria they really are considering those issues, and they're really on top of them. Um, but, you know, we, we're witnessing a, a, a transition that hasn't happened, um, you know, in our lifetime. We've had 100 years of coal production in Victoria, and that is changing really in the space of a couple of decades. So 
it's, it's hard to overstate the level of transition, the rapid transition that's already underway. Cam Walker is my guest on The Great Find this morning. He's with Friends of the Earth and talking about Origin Energy's announcement to, to bring forward the closure of Australia's largest coal-fired power plant in Araring in New South Wales to, to 2025. And, uh, I mean, we, we've sort of talked about the role of, of, of business and, and corporations in, you know, seeing the, the writing on the wall and, and announcing the closure or bringing forward the closure because it sort of makes good business sense and, and gives them more profit-making capacity to do so and, and transition to renewables more broadly. But we've also seen uh, over the past sort of few days that, that multi-billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks has launched a, a bid to take over AGL to fast-track the closure of its coal-fired power stations. And just this morning, it's emerged that um, AGL has rejected that, that takeover bid. What's, what's your sense of, of, of that attempt in the sort of broader mix of, of things that are going on as part of the, the energy transition and, and moves to decarbonise? This was a pretty bold move, you've got to say. Um, you know, I think they made an offer of $8 billion, and AGL is pretty important in terms of energy production. I think it, it burns probably 25%, roughly, of the coal that gets burnt in our domestic coal-fired power stations, um, and it's worth about 8% of national emissions. So, you know, it's really significant that this bid has been made. Um, and uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks uh, did join with a, a pensions fund manager from Canada, uh, and, and he is now basically saying we have earmarked 10 to $20 billion um, to enable a transition to net zero uh, by 2035. So he's really playing a pretty big game here. He's already investing heavily in new build renewables. So um, I think it's one of those moments where you get just this, this just punctuated kind of change in the way things work to see this amount of money. Um, a lot of the older um, energy producing companies are struggling with their share price um, while they remain in expensive coal. So him coming in and making a bid like this would, you know, transform companies. So I think it's, a, again, very hard to overstate the impact of this. It was interesting that um, I, I, AGL appeared to reject it uh, basically because the bid was too low mm. and they said that we can, you know, reposition ourselves internally. So that particular bid I don't think is over as yet. They've just said your opening bid was too low. So even that I think is quite interesting. It continues, yeah. Do you think we're likely to see more of these bold attempts by, you know, people with deep pockets who, who do really, really care about about climate change and, and want to see um, further accelerated decarbonisation? Yes, I think we will. I mean, obviously, there's not many people uh, like Mike, mm. you know, who is a billionaire, uh, but there's a lot of... There are a lot of individuals with money uh, who are starting to kind of intervene in this space. And I think anyone that reads the science knows we need to transition now. We know that absolutely, the, you know, the, the last bit of this decade is what matters if we want to avoid climate catastrophe. The UN says that, the International Energy Agency says that, climate science says that, and people have just been waiting and waiting for the federal government to act, and they won't. And that's why the states and territory have really stepped into that space. That's why the community has stepped into that space and that's also why the business sector has moved in. And we know that the market wants certainty as well. So that's also driving this. But it's not just about altruism, but it's also about well, where where is the investment going or where are the good investments going? So it is, it is pretty complex, but I think we're going to see more people intervening as Mike has 
not at the scale that he's doing it, of course, but certainly intervening uh, to, you know, invest and to drive uh, new growth, not only in renewables, but also in storage. Yeah. And, and I mean, we'll talk to you again before the, the federal election, which we presume will be sometime in May. But how do you imagine these sort of energy climate politics might figure in the lead up to an election campaign? I suppose particularly given um, Energy Minister Angus Taylor's really strong and, and, and sort of angry response, I suppose, to the announcement from Origin. Yes, and of course, I guess the main game federally is the independent candidates mm. network that is being forming to challenge incumbent, uh, particularly liberal um, politicians in seats, and they have a very strong climate focus. So it will be really interesting to see how that will play out. And I think if you look at the polling consistently, people do want action and they want deeper emission reduction um, action by state and federal governments, and clearly that's not happening. So it will be really interesting to see, obviously, in any federal election often they are run either uh, on bread and butter issues uh, like the economy or they're influenced by fear campaigns so it will be interesting to see if this kind of slow burn issue of climate change really does come into focus in this election. Yeah, absolutely. And and just finally, there's a new report from the IPCC due out next Monday, February 28th. Um, what are you expecting from that? Do you have, have much of a sense of, of what might be in that report? Yeah, we're starting to hear a few things. So the, the, the sixth assessment report, what they call AR6, is coming out this year. And um, the next part of the report comes from a working group and it will look at impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. And um, they're going to launch that on the 28th of this month. And what we are hearing, obviously it's all pretty tightly, but um, if it's looking at impacts on particular places around the world, the message we are hearing is that it's painting a very bleak picture of the impacts that many people are already experiencing around the world. So that's changing climate, changing fire regimes, changing weather uh, weather patterns in terms of rain, storm surge, sea level rise and all the rest of it. So we have to hope that as that comes out, people join the dots to what is happening back in their communities because, of course, here in Australia, we're aware that our fire seasons are getting longer and more intense and we've been looking at those terrible fires over in WA this summer. We're aware that things are changing and hopefully having this extra data looking at those impacts and also looking at the need to reduce emissions and adapt to these changes will drive and really get the attention of policymakers around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thanks so much for, for joining us today on The Great Fine. I look forward to chatting to you again in a month's time. Thanks very much. Talk to you then, Dylan. Cam Walker there with Friends of the Earth talking about a whole range of issues, but particularly the announcement from Origin uh, last week on the bringing forward the closure of Australia's largest coal-fired power plant in Araring in New South Wales, um, which is now slated for 2025. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. New reporting from Declassified Australia reveals new details about how an Australian mining company has sought access to Afghanistan's US $3 trillion worth of untapped minerals following the US-led invasion in 2001. The deal is now on ice since the Taliban's takeover last year, but there remain critical questions about the willingness to exploit the war-torn country for profit and how much, if any, benefit might have flowed back to the country itself, uh, which, of course, is still very much in the grip of a humanitarian and economic crisis. To tell us more, Anthony Lowenstein joins me on the line. He's a journalist, author and filmmaker and co-founder of Declassified Australia. Anthony, great to have you on the show. Welcome. 
Thanks so much for having me. And, I mean, Afghanistan has obviously been subject to foreign interventions for much of the past half century, really. How have governments or, or companies sought to gain access to the country's mineral reserves over that time? You know, the story that I did in Declassified Australia last week was talking mostly about the post-9-11 environment, and I'll get to that in a second, but, I mean, clearly, as listeners will be aware, Afghanistan really has been, and it's a cliche to say this, but it's true, the sort of graveyard of empires for hundreds of years, namely the British particularly, who have gone in there a number of times and always lost. But I focus particularly on post-9-11. The U.S. goes in there in October 2001. Obviously, most Western nations followed, including Australia. And very soon, the U.S. discovered um, what the Soviets had discovered when they were occupying the country in the late 70s was huge amounts of natural resources under the ground. And the Soviets were never able to exploit that for a range of reasons. And, of course, they were beaten by the U.S.-backed Um, rebels who ended up becoming the Taliban and partly Al-Qaeda decades later. And so the U.S. really discovered these files and thought this would be an amazing way for us as Americans and Western corporations to make huge amounts of money here. And they spent a lot of money in the last two decades to try to exploit those resources. And when I'm talking resources, I mean copper, gold, lithium, rare earths, many of which are obviously vital in our modern technology, mobile phones and computers, etc. But the bottom line is they didn't get very far. The country was at war. It was unstable. There was no real viable way to get the resources out. There was deep corruption. A number of other countries, including Australia and the UK, also tried to exploit the resources too, and they also didn't get very far, but they spent huge amounts of money trying to do so. And it's really, a, a, on one level, having done a lot of work in the last decade on disaster capitalism around the world, including in Afghanistan, it really is a textbook case of attempts by foreigners to exploit a nation's resources that was only going to principally benefit them and not the Afghans themselves. Yeah, and, and I mean, nonetheless, there have been things said about that the potential role of, of mining and resource extraction as, as a revenue stream for Afghanistan's development as well. And I mean, that kind of reminds me of, of Timor-Leste, one of our closest neighbours, mm-hmm. and, and the idea that the oil and gas reserves in the Timor Sea would, would very much enable their d- development post, um, post-independence. But we know the efforts Australia went to to, to compromise that as well. Um, what's your sense of, of, of how that's played out in Afghanistan, the kind of what's been said by mining companies and governments on the one hand and the viability of that as a means of development? In Afghanistan, like a lot of countries, this conversation is quite tricky because when I was there in 2012 and 2015, and I've got a lot of Afghan friends who are still there and some of them also have left in the last years, that on the one hand... There's no doubt that a country that has between $1 to $4 trillion of resources is an unbelievable potential benefit to the country, on one hand. On the other hand, there are serious questions around what extraction does for climate change, for the environment, mm. for corruption. All those questions are legitimate, obviously. Like a lot of Afghan friends of mine, and I don't want to speak for obviously all Afghans or any Afghans, I'm not Afghan myself, but... A lot of Afghans I speak to who are very much across the issue of climate change, who believe climate change must be addressed, their argument is, has usually been, we haven't got the luxury to leave the resources in the ground. Now, that's an argument one can have either way. But the truth is that what most Western governments and corporations, including here 
Andrew Forrest, which is one of the people I focused on in my declassified story, their argument was didn't talk much about climate change. It was more about the idea that our work in this country is going to benefit the Afghan people. Andrew Forrest went in there talking about benefits for boys and girls, for equality. I mean, it was you, know, you read the contract which we published on Declassified that Andrew Forrest and his team signed with the Afghan government in 2020. This is, of course, in the middle of the pandemic. And the contract speaks of huge benefits for all sides. But the truth is that simply was never going to happen, A. And B, what was never talked about, including in the media coverage that this deal obtained, particularly in the financial press, was how are those resources going to be exploited in the middle of a war zone? How does that practically work? And I'll tell you how it works, because I've spent time there. The only way is if you pay off militias and you pay for hardcore security that essentially deals with any potential enemies, and that's violence. That is extreme mass violence. There is no other way to get resources out of the ground in a country like Afghanistan when it's in the middle of a war. Now, we might talk in a minute about what's going to happen maybe now the Taliban have taken over, mm. but while there was a war going on for 20-odd years since 9-11, the truth is that what Andrew Forrest and many others were talking about was a pipe dream, unless, of course... They believe that, which of course they never said publicly, was that it was an acceptable price to pay to pay off militants, and that means groups that the West would regard as terrorists. And no one wanted to talk about that little reality, but that is the only way this sort of thing could have worked. Yeah, it, it's amazing to me that that this deal that you've um, sort of, sort of outlined in in your report for Declassified Australia that it was brokered in in 2020 during the pandemic, as you say, but also amid very much escalating tensions in Afghanistan and and real um, you know looking towards that the US led um, uh, exit from from the country as well, and the fact that this was brokered at that time, I mean, it, it raises questions about the, the longevity of any such deal in in a future Af- Afghanistan state itself. Um, what, why is it that, that Fortescue Metals and Twiggy Forest managed to, to broker this, this deal at that time, um, or seemingly did, when, when others had failed and, and found it really difficult to do so? You know, Forrest, obviously, on the one hand, is a very interesting character. He made his fortune, his billion, through iron ore. And in the last years, he's talked a lot about transitioning to a green future, green hydrogen. Whether one believes that rhetoric, I guess, is open to people to make their own judgments. But essentially, he's talked about that transition. He's travelled around the world. He went to dozens of countries, including Afghanistan, including, I might add, many other conflict zones, including Congo, in the last few years during the pandemic. And Afghanistan, for him, was a key part of that mission. It was an idea that he was going to bring a greener future to Afghanistan and benefit the Afghan people. Now, having spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, he was there for maybe one or two days. Now, I'm not sure what information he was being told, but the truth is, as I said, the only way that could have ever worked was through a lot of butting of heads. And I'm talking about violence Mm. to extract those resources. And to me, one of the grim ironies of what's happened in the last 20 years in Afghanistan, apart from the fact of the massive human toll, particularly Afghan civilians, obviously countless soldiers from Western countries, here we are 20 years on, the Taliban are now back in charge. The country is arguably more at peace now than it's ever been. Now, I'm not saying that in praise of the Taliban. I'm simply saying that the rate of death and violence has hugely come down in most of the countries since the Taliban took over. Of course, the country is now facing economic collapse. 
which is a complete catastrophe. And much of the West is not doing anything to assist that, including Australia. And one part of the story that um, I think is worth mentioning that I uh, reported for the first time in Declassified Australia last week was how a number of very, very senior Afghan officials who were, in fact, some were deeply involved in that tricky forest deal, who were very involved in the Ministry of Mines, who were very, very close to Ash, um, Ashraf Ghani, who's a former Afghan uh, leader. They're living in Australia now. They were brought out by Australia since the Taliban fell along with roughly 4,500 Afghans, many of whom are trying to make a new life here. Australia, I think, should have taken far more, but that's a separate conversation. And that, to me, is a serious question because there are many Afghans I know who are pretty upset with the fact that Australia and other Western countries, including New Zealand and the US and the UK, have taken in Afghan civilians, but also seriously senior Afghan officials from the former government with serious allegations of corruption against them. Now... That's never been discussed here. It's never been mentioned in the media. It's never been talked about by the government. As far as I'm aware, the government's never been asked that question. And it's a legitimate one. Um, now, uh, you know, that, I'm not suggesting there's a connection between those people and Twiggy Forest and may or may not be. But I think we, when we look at the legacy of the Afghan war 20-plus years on, what exactly is the legacy? The country is ruined. It is caused huge amounts of pain and suffering, and the Afghan, and the resources, I might add, are now still under the ground. The Taliban is trying to exploit them. They're selling off a number of mines at the moment. In fact, the countries that have a good chance of exploiting those resources are China and Pakistan, not the Western nations that invested insane amounts of money and resources in the last 20 years. That's where this is likely to go. Yeah. Speaking with Anthony Lowenstein, independent journalist, author and filmmaker and co-founder of Declassified Australia, all about a, a report that came out through, uh, kind of a, a joint report through Declassified Australia and Declassified UK about Australia's failed resource grab in Afghanistan. And, I mean, as part of your, your film and book, Disaster Capitalism, you engaged with local communities who were really caught in the crossfire of some of these attempts by mining corporations to um, to gain access to, to resources and, and exploit them as well. What's your sense of, of the situation for people in these areas, given that the Taliban is now seemingly selling off some of these, um, these uh, mineral reserves to other foreign governments? I spent time in um, an area near, it's called Mess Inac. It's basically an hour from Kabul in one of the potentially biggest copper deposits in the world. It was a mine area that was sold to the Chinese um, about 15 years ago. And that mine never got off the ground because of huge amounts of violence and corruption. And I spent time in a community very close to there who had been exploited, who had been kicked off their land, who had been promised the world. You know, schools, education, roads, hospitals, and of course they got nothing. And when I met them a number of years ago, they were on the verge of joining the insurgency because they were so deeply frustrated and angered by everybody, by the Taliban, by the Afghan government, by the Chinese company. Now, fast forward to 2022, that mine, that Chinese-owned mine, remains dormant. It's not ever started. And, I mean, ultimately, I think if the Taliban are able to, in inverted commas, stabilise the country, if the country remains relatively lacking in violence. I think there is a decent chance with infrastructure and time that a number of outside companies could well exploit those resources. I've said China is very much top of the list. China is a close friend of the Taliban. They haven't recognised them formally, but they've already given them financial support. They're obviously a neighbour. They, in some ways, uh, uh, were one of the parties throughout the negotiations between the West and the Taliban for years. 
that stayed quasi neutral. They didn't really take a massive side, although they clearly have sympathy for um, the Taliban's position. And what worries me moving forward is that who really benefits when a country like Afghanistan's minerals are exploited? History would suggest principally not the Afghan people, mm. as I discovered when I spent time in Bougainville, for example, in Papua New Guinea, with the massive Rio Tinto mine there yeah, back in the day. Locals do not benefit. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible they can't benefit, but you find me a country that is a developing country that's been at war where this has been done well. And I don't think many listeners will be able to give an example because they don't really exist. And that, that of course, goes to the question before, right, about should these resources be exploited in the first place? And obviously, ultimately, it's not my decision. It's the Afghan people's decision. But is it their decision, really, in the end? Are they going to have a say? And with the Taliban government that's not democratic, I fear that they won't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, and, uh, I mean, looking forward, I mean, there's been a, a effectively sort of a vacuum created through the removal of, of um, you know, foreign aid and, and funding into Afghanistan. And, and you know, but, but on the flip side, there's been a reduction in violence since the, the US-led um, forces exited. But there's broader questions around sort of human rights and, and gender equality and all that sort of thing as well. What do you think constructive engagement looks like for the Australian government? Because, I mean, these issues, simply aren't really reported much at all across the broader media landscape. And when they are, they focus on the, the US-Australia alliance and for a brief time that the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan right at the point of, of exiting. What do you think would be a, a much more constructive approach from the Australian government um, to, to the situation? The only way this is going to radically change, and it's not a view that people want to hear, is you need to speak and engage with the Taliban. There is no other way. This doesn't mean that you endorse the Taliban, you give them a big hug. It doesn't mean any of that. But if you want to help the roughly 40 million Afghans, many of whom are literally on the verge of starvation because the country for 20 years had been propped up by foreign aid, most of that aid has now disappeared pretty much as soon as the Taliban took over in mid-August last year. The only way you can do that is to engage the government who rules the country. That's the Taliban. And, yes, there is some aid coming in, Yes, various countries are sending some. Yes, NGOs are operating there, doing the best they can. But nothing can replace an actual government in Kabul managing that. Now, it's not going to be perfect. This is not to idealise the Taliban. <laughs> Far from it. That's what needs to happen. And in absence of that, because I fear that's not going to happen with, frankly, the Morrison government or if Labor wins in a few months. Mm. I don't see that being a, a, you know, a particular priority to engage with the Taliban. But there needs to be a, an acknowledgement of the responsibility and culpability that we in the West have to that situation. Now, you talk about the media coverage. The media coverage of Afghanistan for most of 20 years has been an absolute disgrace. And I say that as a journalist myself. <laughs> most of the media for years supported the war, backed the war, endorsed the war, embedded with the soldiers from the West. That was their position. And when you look back at how they covered their withdrawal the messy, ugly withdrawal, when I supported the withdrawal of the US forces, but it was a complete debacle how it was managed last August, many of them either said it or implied the US should stay there indefinitely. And it's only two choices. It's either a foreign occupation or the Taliban. The, that, you know, that, was the, that was the binary choice, one or the other. And I think there were many journalists, I don't talk about this that much in my declassified Australia piece, but I've written about it elsewhere, is my experience has been over the years, having done a lot of war reporting and conflict reporting, is that independently, not embedded with foreign mm. troops, is that many journalists 
love the idea of the military. They see the military as a benign force. They love spending time with soldiers and think that's sort of exciting. This is how the reporting often has been. It was very, very pro-war. And let's also not forget, Australia has allegedly killed dozens and dozens and dozens of Afghan civilians. I mean, mm. no one's talking about that. Now, where are the trials for that? Where's the accountability? Where is the reparations? I mean, to me, a serious nation, after occupying another for decades, would talk about reparations. It's not even on the agenda. Yeah. No one mentions it. No one talks about it. So there are things we could do, but not many people are talking about it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really glad we've had you on Triple R to talk about it. Um, we really value your work over here and, um, and really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. No, thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Anthony Lowenstein there, independent journalist, filmmaker and author. He's also co-founder of Declassified Australia. And we're talking specifically about um, one of their articles they they published last week um, titled Australia's Failed Resource Grab in Afghanistan. It's well worth a read and um, and well worth following Declassified Australia on Twitter as well and, um, and checking out their website regularly because their journalism is top-notch. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. One of the biggest issues facing democracies around the world is disinformation. From QAnon conspiracy theories to hysteria around 5G and COVID-19 vaccines, it's clear to see how our online existence has enabled the spread of often harmful falsehoods. And while much has been written about the dangers of disinformation, it's less common to hear about what we can do to counter it. Ed Coper is a communications expert. He's turned his attention to this topic for a new book. It's called Facts and Other Lies Welcome to the the disinformation age, and as well as exploring the problem of disinformation in great detail, he offers original insights about the allure of fake news and how we might approach others who have become convinced of things that aren't true. And uh, Ed now joins me on the line. Hello, Ed. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. And I mean, different terminology is used for this topic. There's you know, misinformation, disinformation, and the more popularly used term fake news. How do you define the phenomenon that you're focusing on in this book? Well, look, all the terms have their purpose and they get, they get a bit confused, especially fake news, because that's generally what people, uh, how people refer to what we're talking about. But of course, the people who use fake news have also adopted that term against real news now. So, you know, the technical terms are, are, are a bit more uh, wonkish, but uh, misinformation is, is anything that's out there that's false, and sometimes there can be good reasons for that. Sometimes it might be accidental, sometimes it might be satire, but that would still be categorised as misinformation. Disinformation, on the other hand, is when people spread falsehoods deliberately. So they are on a mission to deceive you and they have various reasons for doing that, ranging from political motives, but usually the common one is profit. And uh, disinformation is big business. It's very popular around the world. It's getting a lot of attention. So that's uh, that's that's the start of the, the story is to understand what's happening. Yeah, and I mean, people have been lying for <laughs> forever, really, um, often for, for personal gain, whether that's for, for profit or for, for political reasons or whatever that might be. What is is different or unique about the current age we're living in? Well, you're right. Lying is, is just a normal, natural part of, of the human condition. Um, it's the exception to the rule. We, we're mostly truthful. Otherwise, lies would never work because we've got to assume that 
what we hear is truthful so that so we, we can then be deceived. So that's normal. It's part of evolution. Other species in the animal kingdom lie as well. But uh, something has fundamentally changed, and it's not the presence of lies. It's the fact that they have really taken over our whole information ecosystem. They've moved to become mainstream. And at the same time, people have lost the ability uh, to, to recognise them. They're so used to having information that has some kind of quality control. When the internet came along and when social media came along, it gave us access to a lot of information that had no quality control. Uh, but we never changed our habits or our expectations. So that's what we're dealing with now the fact that we have a polluted information ecosystem and it's serving us a, a lot of unhealthy uh, information. Yeah, and I mean, you've got a, a lot of direct experience in using digital technology and, and the tools of, of social media and so on to sort of bring politics into the digital age, I suppose, working with the likes of, of GetUp and Change.org and, and other groups as well. And I mean, it feels like, um, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a, a real positive sense that the internet could be a great democratiser. It could give ordinary people people a voice that they hadn't hadn't had before. When did you sort of start to feel or become aware that these new tools could be the cause of a real social and, and political problems down the line? Yeah, that's right. The internet was very liberating and, and democratising when it first came along because it really was uh, a, a neutral platform uh, where people could use the technology to, to access a wider audience than usual uh, and to share things amongst their peers much more easily. Uh, and you might remember the era, the era of mass forwarded email. Uh, and that's just coming from peer to peer and saying, this is important to me and I think it'll be important to you. Mm. And that was really useful for people that use the internet to spread ideas. Uh, that's not quite the neutral platform that we get now. Now the information we see is governed by algorithms that determine what will be interesting to you and what you specifically are most likely to react to. So it's not uh, a level playing field. And especially on social media, those platforms are geared to show people what they already agree with or what they're likely to agree with or what they think their peers think because that's normally very engaging. And the unintended consequence of that is that this information is a much neater fit for those algorithms and gets rewarded by those algorithms because it's normally emotive and plays into our subconscious biases, uh, whereas the truth it's kind of punished by those algorithms. The truth isn't, isn't a good fit for, for something deciding what do you want to see that's really going to push your buttons. The truth's pretty mundane. So that's really what's led us to this situation where, where it's not a level playing field between lies and truth. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on big sort of tech companies, social media giants in this space and, and the actual kind of um, act of putting disinformation in, out into the world itself, whether that's by sort of politicians or, or others for, for their own um, political gain or, or you know, other, other kinds of gain. But in this book, you uh, sort of bring in behavioural sciences and, and cognitive psychology which I think is such an important perspective that's, that's often lacking in some of the ways that we often speak about disinformation in sort of the, the, the public sort of media sphere. Why did you think it was really important to include that in this book? Well, I think that, and don't get me wrong, the, the social media platforms are, are really big players in this and there's all sorts mm. of things that they need to be doing differently if, if they're going to help be part of the solution. 
but they can often be a red herring because when we think of the solutions that we want uh, social media platforms to do, they're very often band-aid solutions and, and in fact, quite often they're counterproductive. And they, they assume that when there's a falsehood out there, that if we can just replace it with a fact, then that would cure the problem. And that's the role of, the, of social media platforms. Now, there's a very big problem with that is that's just not how our brains work. So unless we look behind all of the, you know, the, the details of where this is occurring and, and, and what the specific lies are, we've got to go deeper than that and, and understand why it's happening. And we're not going to change human nature. We have to understand human nature. We have to understand our cognitive biases if we're able to address this problem. So the, the, the coincidence of the social media platforms favouring disinformation is that they're, they're platforms that are geared to really cater to our cognitive biases because that's how you provide effective advertising, that's how you provide effective engagement. But that's also how you give disinformation a leg up. So we do have to understand those cognitive biases if we're going to address this because the Band-Aid solutions won't do anything to change the fact that our brains don't care about truth or falsehood. It's interesting, isn't it? Because underlying that is is this this idea that we're not we're not rational. Human beings aren't rational, and that has sort of underpinned a lot of um, sort of you know Western philosophy for you know through the Enlightenment and and that sort of thing. But I mean, advertisers and so on have known for a long time that we make decisions primarily based on emotion and have understood the, the role of emotion in decision making. And what is it about disinformation that that you think people you know us all um, might find alluring and, and attractive when we encounter it? Well, there's a number of good reasons why it's so effective. And the first one is that it often is packaged into just a really good story. So our brains like a good story. That's why we like watching Netflix. That's why we like going to the movies or reading good good fiction. So disinformation, think about the types of disinformation uh, stories you've heard out there recently about COVID and 5G or QAnon. You know, these things are Hollywood scripts. Uh, and so our brains love that. Uh, and that's a big part of the reason why it's so attractive. Another part of the reason is that our brains are geared to look at something and fit it to what we already think, not look at something and, and use it to determine what we already think. So we think, we think we're much more rational than we are. We think we look at a set of facts and use that to decide uh, what our own reality is, uh, when in fact it's the other way around. We already know our own reality and we interpret the facts to make sure that they, they confirm it. And if they say something that, that, that contradicts our reality, our brains will happily just contort it or misinterpret it or ignore it so that we don't have to change our beliefs. Bra our brains hate changing what they already think. So disinformation can find people and reinforce false beliefs and connect them to other people who, who, who agree with them and shut them off from people who disagree with them or any information that contradicts it. So that just plays into how our brains like to work. Speaking with Ed Coper all about his brand new book, Facts and Other Lies, Welcome to the Disinformation Age. And I mean, when, when we talk about disinformation and particularly conspiracy theories and, and seeing the kind of effect that can have um, uh, on, on people and on sort of, you know, protest movements that might be based on, on falsehoods. I mean, clearly you can, you can see that these convictions are very firmly held by people who get swept up in this. But, but I also wonder about, um, you know, there can be a tendency to, to other people to think that disinformation is something that other people are, are attracted by and not so much 
us. How important is it to, to sort of to not other people and, and be more aware of the, the kind of decision-making processes that we all inhabit, which, which might make some of us more inclined to, um, to kind of fall into some kind of disinformation rabbit hole? Yeah, and there's been lots of interesting work that researchers have done to try to see who is more susceptible to disinformation. Are there certain uh, characteristics or demographics or ideologies that uh, are really commonly represented? And, and one of the surprising things is time after time, some of the things that you would assume correlate uh, don't. So, you know, in fact, the more years of education you've had and the more intelligent you are, uh, the better you do on, on cognitive tests, it doesn't mean you're any more rational. It just means you're better at uh, reverse engineering an explanation for why you think what you think. So in other words, uh, someone who, who rates highly on the intelligence scale will just convince you that they're right, but whether they're right or not is, is immaterial. Mm. So, it's, so the people that are susceptible to disinformation is, is really anyone. And we might be uh, guilty of, of small uh, instances of this all the time when we cherry-pick statistics to suit our argument or selectively quote someone or read a headline and, uh, and then talk about it as if it reinforced what we said without ever reading the story. Um, so, so everyone does it. The different types of disinformation seem to appeal to different groups. So, for example, older people seem to be more susceptible to some forms of disinformation, but younger people are more susceptible to COVID disinformation. So it seems to depend. But the, the point is, everyone does it. We all have parts of ourselves that are irrational and parts of ourselves are rational. So the solutions begin not with thinking of people as other, that affected by disinformation, but understanding how, in fact, we might be affected by it and, and what that would mean to empathise with others. You talk a lot about echo chambers in your book or also kind of known as filter bubbles, this idea that we occupy particular spheres online, which means that our own um, you know, opinions and perspectives on the world get mirrored back to us and that in turn might sort of amplify particular sentiments that we hold. What's the role of, of community within echo chambers and, and the on, online sphere? Because because it can be obviously a really positive thing to build community and, and, and build relationships with others online. And that's been a really positive thing for a lot of people, particularly during COVID. But how does that play into the, the problem of disinformation that we're currently dealing with? Well, absolutely. Community is probably the fundamental human desire. So all of our impulses draw us back to that. And that's, that's a big part of the reason why disinformation can be so successful, because our desire to be part of a community is much stronger than our desire to be truthful or our desire to be correct. So sometimes that can be fine when we are surrounded by a community who is grounded in facts uh, and healthy. But obviously, that can also be problematic when, uh, when our community uh, believes a falsehood. So to, if I'm part of a community that thinks the earth is flat, I signal to them that I am a good person by sharing that belief and spreading that belief, even if it is false. Whether it's true or false is immaterial. So a really good example of this uh, has been the Canberra convoy protest that everyone's been reading about uh, over the last couple of weeks. And a lot of the people on the ground there were telling really heart-wrenching stories about losing friends and family because of their beliefs. 
And that's been playing out across Australia and the world throughout the pandemic as people have been pushed into more extreme opinions. They get cut off by their friends and their family. But they still have that really strong human need to belong. So what do they do? They find other people who share their mistaken beliefs and they reinforce it. They get pushed into those bubbles and it becomes very hostile to outside thought. So those groups in Canberra were very hostile to people who disagreed with them and it's really hard to pull them out of that bubble because of that fact. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, w- I want to talk about how to effectively combat disinformation because towards the end of, of the book, you you outline a whole range of, of tips in terms of how to engage with others and, and, and address disinformation when you see it or, or when not to act as well. Um, but, but let's sort of first talk about what doesn't work. You mentioned earlier that simply putting more facts out into the world doesn't really have a, a positive effect. Why has this persisted as, as a means of addressing disinformation? Well, I just think that's our standard assumption. You know, that seems intuitive to us that where there is a falsehood, a fact will correct it. And so that's been the standard response. And people see that done uh, everywhere. They see the platforms do it. They see the WHO do it to address COVID myths. They see governments do it. They see um, news outlets do it. And so our assumption has been, well, this must work. So when I see a fact, maybe a a falsehood, maybe I'll uh, correct it with a fact. And and this is part of the problem I was alluding to earlier, is that without that understanding about our cognitive biases and the whole ecosystem of how disinformation works, that leads us to these these solutions that that don't work and are counterproductive. So we know that um, myth-busting, Uh, often just reinforces the myth because you're repeating it and making it more familiar and making it more sticky. And we know that labelling often just draws people's attention to it. Or even when it works on, if you label one bit of disinformation, it makes people think that other bits of disinformation without a label are correct. So these these are the standard things that, that, that people have tried. And they're not working and, in fact, they've done study after study showing they can be counterproductive too. That's fascinating. And when you say labelling, you're referring to those sort of tags you see on, on Facebook and Twitter posts that, that say, you know, this, this might not be true. Yeah, and so, you know, platforms don't like to be the arbiters of free speech. They don't like to censor speech. So their preference is to leave everything on it but attach a warning to it. But the problem is attaching to attaching a warning to a piece of disinformation is not effective and, in fact, uh, can do a couple of things. One, it can uh, draw more attention to it. Two, as I mentioned earlier, it can make people think that other things are true that aren't. Yeah. But three, it becomes a bit of a, a, bit of a badge of honour yeah. for people. You know, these communities, I'm saying, have become hostile to outside thought. Getting a warning label for them signals that they're good within their community. Look at me, these evil platforms or these these outlets are fact-checking me and correcting me. I'm a good person, I'm one of you. So it it strengthens the bonds within those communities. And there might be an urge for for many of us when we see disinformation or, you know, particularly information that's harmful and, and, you know, might be bad for for public health or, you know, might be um, encouraging violence or, or something like that to intervene. If you see that on an online platform, for example, and and try to debunk that disinformation or even have a go at the person who's posted it. Is that a good idea or, or does that sort of have a blowback effect? Uh, it absolutely has a blowback effect. So, I mean, frequent users of social media will understand how commenting on something or sharing something, even to bring attention to it, to debunk it, just gives it a leg up with the algorithm as well. 
Um, so your friends might all of a sudden be able to see something that they couldn't see before. It'll be appearing higher in people's feeds. Um, and, and also, it's, it's never going to be effective if you're trying to engage with someone on the public platform that they're trying to signal their, their opinions on, mm. because that's, that's just not an environment that's conducive for agreement. Um, people, uh, I've never seen anyone be, uh, have an argument in a comment, comment thread of a Facebook post and then admit they were wrong. <laughs> and it just doesn't happen. So, you know, we can't expect that that's the way that, that we can pull people out of these falsehoods. Yeah, yeah, we keep arguing online nonetheless. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, so what does work then? So if tagging posts doesn't necessarily work, if, if putting factual information out into the sort of information ecosystem doesn't necessarily work and then directly responding to someone in a public comments thread doesn't work, what, what can we do when we see disinformation and, and want to do something about it? There's a couple of things we can do on the individual level and there's a couple of things we need to do on a society-wide mm-hmm. level. And the things that we need to do on an individual level, you know, as we were saying, it doesn't work in public. People don't like being corrected. They don't have to like admitting that they were wrong in front of their peers. So what we've got to do is is have that conversation with them in private. Uh, maybe we know them, maybe they're family, friend or, uh, you know, relative. Maybe we speak to them on the phone. That would be the great place to start. Pick up the phone, have a conversation with them. Or um, if they're less well-known to you, send them a direct message instead of a and say, um, hey, I noticed you shared this. And rather than just saying, you're all stupid, that's wrong, which obviously is counterproductive, we've got to find the overlap we have in shared values. We've got to find the things that we agree on and focus on the things that we agree on. And it's hard to do because sometimes we think the opinions that we're correcting are just really far out there. So, you know, if you're, if you're speaking to someone who thinks that... Uh, you know, they, they, they have problems with the COVID vaccine. They think it's a big conspiracy. They're really expressing some, some values we might agree with. They, mm. they, they might be caring about people's health. Yeah. It might come from a really genuine place of concern. You know, so we start with that. We share the value of concern for people's health. Now it's just we, we make different conclusions based on the evidence we see. But you've got to start on the things that you agree on, not go straight to the disagreement. And it also seems to me from, from reading your book, really important to be aware of, of your own cognitive biases as well and critically reflect on how and why you hold the views and positions you do. Because often, you know, all of us make, make decisions and, and come to our worldview through sort of mental shortcuts as well. So, so it seems to be acknowledging that maybe your perspective on the world might not be 100% correct as well. So stop and think before making some of these, these efforts to engage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. None of us are immune to the same things that lead other people to disinformation and lead us to, you know, contrary opinions to them. Mm. So it's the same process, it's just a different destination. So part of the problem of why this proliferates on social media is that we don't tend to engage our brains very much when we're using it. We do it in downtime, usually on our phones, we're scrolling through things, and we don't put a lot of mental effort into assessing something before we share it. If it's something that looks like something that reinforces our pre-existing opinions, we'll just hit share. So they think that as a result, if you give someone a simple nudge to think about accuracy, just say, hey, have you checked the sources? Is this a reputable news outlet? Is this true? the incidence of sharing misinformation halved. Mm. 
So a lot of it is unintentional, and, and that's a really good start for us to think about how do these things apply to us before we you know, jump straight to criticising other people for, for being you know, subject to the same processes. Yeah, totally. And, and what about on a society-wide and, and policy sense? I mean, do you think there's, there's much more we could do to, to have a, a, a more constructive information ecosystem, whether that means sort of government regulation or social media platforms taking a, a bit of a different course with this? Yes, absolutely, and we can't lose... You've got to see the forest for the trees here and not just think about the specific instances and platforms. You've got to think about uh, what has happened to society. And we have had our traditional media ecosystem completely rotted away, the way that we traditionally got fact-based news and information to us. Uh, The collapse of the news media ecosystem over the last couple of decades has been really, really significant and it's the big reason why we live in an unhealthy information ecosystem now. So investing in public journalism, investigative journalism, dare I say community radio, (laughs) uh, and all of these sorts of uh, (laughs) places that have uh, quality control on information. Journalistic standards, uh, you know, normal uh, audience expectations that, that, that you'll get factual information. We have to invest in those. The other thing we have to do is to recognise that as consumers of information, we inhabit a completely new era. And none of us have the skills or understanding to inhabit this era because we, we don't know that. We think we're still living in the old era where we got uh, fact-based information. So we need to teach digital media literacy at a really young age and, and we have to make sure adults are getting a new education in that as well so that we are able to interact with each other online and form our opinions and share our opinions online in a healthy way rather than just being ignorant to the cognitive biases that are, that are causing us to share a lot of unhealthy information. Yeah, that's such an important issue and you've really tackled this in an original and um, kind of rollicking way as well. It's, it's a really fun read, this book. It seems like you had a lot of fun writing it. Well, you'll see one of the insights there is that you need to entertain people while giving them information. So I definitely try to practice what I preach there because uh, that's, uh, that'll make it much more memorable and sticky if it, uh, if it can entertain as well. So that's, uh, that's just following the, uh, the, the advice of all the excellent academic research that I learned about. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today, Ed. Um, thanks so much and congrats on the book. Triple. It's so great to see so many gigs on around town once again, but for people living with disability, there are still substantial barriers to getting out and seeing live music. That can include anything from getting into venues themselves to accessing tickets, getting to the bar and having Auslan interpreters on hand. Tibby Access is an organisation set up to address this issue and help rally for change across the music venue and festival circuit. To talk more about it and preview their upcoming show at the Corner Hotel, I'm very happy to be joined by the founder of Tibby Access, Dina Basile. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dina. Welcome. Hi, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. And, I mean, you're a a big fan of music yourself, and I understand that was a a significant motivation in you launching Tibby Access. Tell me about your experience with seeing live music over the years and what kinds of challenges you've encountered. I've I've grown up around live music my whole life. My parents took me to events, you know, when I was quite a young girl, and I am a person living with a disability. So... I've experienced firsthand the lack of access and that's things like 
being put on a viewing platform that's located, you know, all the way at the back of the show. And that causes, I guess, a sense of feeling disconnected. You know, things like pathways not being available at festivals. But when we look at things now, you know, this was over 10 years ago. Things are changing and it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, talk to me about your motivation in, in launching Tibby Access, because, of course, you know, as you say, that there has been some change, but, but not enough change um, by the sounds of things as well. What led to you um, launching the organisation? I, I started um, sort of... I always knew that I wanted to be in the music and arts industry, and I studied a Bachelor of Entertainment Business, and I thought that I wanted to do artist management and then sort of realised down the track that that wasn't for me. So I had a conversation with one of my lecturers, and she said, you know, you need to think about filling the gap in the industry and what that looks like. And and I went home and I had a think and that was sort of a little bit of a light bulb moment for me in that I'm a person living with a disability. I've I've experienced the live music and events industry and and there's a massive gap there and that's sort of when TV started um, was in 2018 and, and that's when I thought, you know, there needs to be a change made and it can come from a person with lived experience as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and I mean, you, you experienced those challenges with, with seeing live music, as you outlined, in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. being put right at the back of the crowd and, and not really being able to see what's going on on stage and, and having the, um, the sort of pathways often not really big enough for, for, you know, wheelchairs and the like as well. What was it like mm-hmm. for you when you started engaging with venues and, and festivals? I mean, how aware were they of these kinds of issues? I guess, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it was one of those things where people were slowly starting to realise the importance. Um, TB received a lot of positive feedback from the disability community. And that was really encouraging, uh, you know, getting feedback saying, you know, it's really nice to see a disability-led organisation representing us and representing, you know, the change that we need. Yeah. And I mean, if we're talking about things like access ramps and and viewing platforms that, you know, as you say, for, for festivals and large scale venues, there might be some flexibility with putting those types of things in. But, you know, yeah. there's there's lots of different types of venues around around cities. Some of them are small and pokey and, and you know, have, have serious access issues in the way that they're built. What can be done in those kinds of instances? I mean, what, what have, have venue bookers and, and owners of venues um, implemented to bring about change and, and better inclusivity in their spaces? I think when it, when it comes to accessibility, people always panic because they think we need new ramps, we need new toilets, and this is going to be really, really costly. Um, but now we're seeing more and more grants requiring people to put in a, a section about what accessibility features they're putting, and grants are funding access changes which is a massive help to venues it's a massive help to festivals you know to include things like ramps to include things like Auslan interpreters etc so it's you know there's now a lot of government support there's also you know little rental kind of ramps etc features that you can include as well so there's a lot of big changes that are coming but 
when it comes to your physical accessibility, there's also a lot of quick wins that you can do um, that are not going to cost a lot of money, and that starts obviously with your online presence and making sure you know your website's accessible. Is your social media accessible? Do you have an FAQs page available and up to date? Because as I said, every customer journey starts online. So ensuring your online presence on social media is accessible is a great and a really budget-friendly way for your business to start their accessible journey. Yeah, and, and they're really easy fixes, aren't they? I mean, yeah. tweaking a website and, and making sure that, that those pages are up to date and, and can be engaged with by as many people as possible. What sort of um, workshops or, or resources do you have for venues who, who might be you know, wanting to do more in that sort of space? So uh, TV Access provides a workshop called Let's Talk Access and we run through all of the quick wins that you can do with your online presence but also your hardware. So what it looks like, you know, to have an Auslan interpreter in place, what it looks like for having a lowered bar and how you can do that on a on a budget friendly um, sort of setting as well. Um, you can also access our website. We have plenty of, of blogs articles and helpful resources. Um, there's also a great UK-based company called Attitude is Everything, and they have some really great downloadable resources online to help with DIY access tips as well. So there's plenty out there. You know, there's companies like myself that are, you know, here as a helping hand, and there are organisations like Attitude is Everything overseas that, you know, still have things that we can access as well. Yeah, and that, that's a great list of resources. And, and as I was sort of reading through your content, um, you know, often we, we, we talk about venues and bookers and, and festivals and, and that sort of thing. But what about artists who might be playing gigs or, or putting on shows? Are there things that can be done to make sure the shows themselves are as accessible as possible to all, whether in terms of the, the promotion or, you know, where gigs are held and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, look, it's, it's all about communication you know you can put um i guess a really great and handy tip that we always give is putting in your rider a little line about accessibility do you have any access requirements and sending that out to all artists because then it gives them it gives everyone i guess an opportunity to provide any of their access requirements that they might be scared to do otherwise um but it's about communication. It's about talking to your artists and making sure that you're supporting them in the best capacity that you can. Every disability is different. Every person's requirements are going to be different. So it's important to have those conversations and ensure that you know everyone's feeling safe and, and happy to perform at every gig. Yeah, absolutely. I'm speaking with Dina Basile, the founder of TB Access, all about the, the efforts the organisation goes to to improve accessibility and inclusion for people with disability in the music scene. And, I mean, you launched TB Access in 2018, so, um, you know, three, three years ago, three to four years ago. What kind of have changes have, have you seen as a result of, of your work and, and what does it feel like to see some of those changes coming to fruition across the, the music industry? Um, I, I've seen, I think over time and especially over COVID, um, I've seen people kind of realise the importance of accessibility and, and people are starting to educate themselves, which is one of the most important things. Um, 
we're seeing, you know, I've had so many people kind of over time, over COVID, where we haven't been able to attend these gigs and plan these gigs. So it's been a time where people are like, okay, I need to educate myself and I can do this by accessing these workshops. People are now, you know, updating their social media, updating their websites and their FAQ pages while they've got sort of nothing else to do, which has been a massive step forward. That's really a really positive story, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's sometimes hard to find silver linings out of the pandemic, but maybe there's something about the, the community spirit and thinking about others, that the well-being of others that is, is feeding into a greater willingness, perhaps. Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, we're also here to, to talk about a really exciting gig you've got coming up um, in about a month's time. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so we are hosting our very first inclusive and accessible event, uh, and it's called Groove Tunes. So, Groove Tunes, um, for Groove Tunes, we've implemented a range of accessible features. So, we've got Auslan interpreters, we have a sensory zone, an accessible bar um, to make our event inclusive and as safe as possible, not just for our punters, but also our artists who are living with disability. So, We've created this event as well to use as a teaching platform um, and it's an opportunity for us to show industry professionals what the standard should be for every event moving forward and how easy it is to make a show accessible as well. And we've been working on this for a couple of years now um, and we're a month away, so it's becoming very (laughs) real, very exciting. Um, And like you mentioned earlier, it'll be at the Corner Hotel on March 19th. Yeah, yeah, so exciting. And I mean, what role can these kind of showcase gigs play? Because I think it's such a great idea to show just what it looks like to have a fully accessible gig and that it's not this big, scary thing, but it can be done, you know, often quite easily. Do you imagine that that you might stage more of these types of events to to help inspire broader change? ultimately the goal is that we want to make Groove Tunes annual um, and we want to we want to see the, the implementations that we put in this event I would love to see it you know moving forward in other events as well at other events sorry as well you know we've when I say we've implemented an accessible bar what we've literally done is grab two small tables and attach them to the side of the bar and we've put that as our accessible bar and that cost us nothing you know it's about making these small changes to ensure the inclusivity of everyone yeah fantastic and and um give us a, a heads up about who's playing so on our lineup we have saint ergo uh, irene zong Edward Rusak, Matilda Powell, and we have the Grogans who are headlining. Um, and it's a really exciting lineup because we have artists representing different communities. We have artists who identify as having disability, and we have artists um, representing the LGBTQI plus community as well. They're all incredible, and we're so excited to have them perform. And I understand anyone out there can purchase a ticket, I mean, obviously to go along themselves, but, but for someone living with disability, because we know, you know, going out and, and, and buying tickets for things can be quite challenging for people living with disability. So how, do, how does that work, the, the sort of pay it forward model that you've got um, set up? Yes, yeah, so we've implemented, um, well, as you mentioned, what we call the pay it forward ticket. So for anyone living with a disability who cannot afford to purchase a ticket for our event, um, 
the, someone from the general public can purchase a ticket for them. So they hop onto Oztix um, and purchase a pay it forward ticket, and that ticket then automatically goes to someone with a disability for them to be able to attend our event. And that's another accessible feature um, that we've put into our event that, again, you know, has cost us nothing. Another really, really wonderful quick win, and it's it's been a really popular ticket option, actually, which has been great. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And, and this just so represents all the, the great things that the music community and industry can be. And I think it's, um, it, it's such a positive story, you know, coming out of lockdown here in Melbourne to see this event happening um, in, in the flesh and, um, and you know, promoting such, such positive change across, across the music sector and, and the music community as well. It's, um, it's a real great effort. Congratulations and, um, and, and best of luck with the gig. Thank you. Thanks so much. We're so excited and, um, yeah, hope to see as many people there as possible. Absolutely, and, and may it be the first of many, hopefully, as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Dina Basile has been my guest, founder of TB Access, and we've been chatting all about their work in improving accessibility and inclusion for people living with disability in the music scene. And to get tickets for Groove Tunes, you can head to the Corner Hotel's website, and you can also look up TB Access online if you're keen to find out more about their work and access their resources to help promote greater accessibility in the music and arts scene as well thanks for listening to this podcast of triple r's the grapevine a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every monday hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect hit us up via the triple r website